We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to go ahead and turn there. As you'll probably recall, we're still working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're in this third kind of major section where Paul is answering the Corinthians' questions. He's, he's greeted them lovingly, he's, he's praised them, uh, and then in the beginning he started addressing and correcting some more notable problems within the church, their, their lack of unity, uh, sexual immorality, and then he's moved on to answering specific questions that they've, that they've asked him about. If we go back before, even before Christmas, we looked at marriage and singleness, uh, food sacrifice to idols, Christian liberty, things of that nature, and and we're still in this area where Paul's answering their questions. Now, of course, we only have the, we only have the answers. We don't have the questions that Paul wrote. And uh, so sometimes it kind of reminds me of, of the game show Jeopardy. You know, we've got Paul is giving them the answers, and, and we're left kind of wondering what the question might be. And that's kind of how that game show goes. So I find myself when I'm reading through 1 Corinthians, kind of playing my own little uh, game of Corinthian Jeopardy, wondering what the exact question was that, that they might have been asking Paul. As I read through this passage and studied this passage over the last several weeks, this uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, one of the kind of common themes I saw among both commentators and theologians was that this passage was confusing, that this passage had them stumped until they dug a little more. So, you know, it was a little bit more difficult to play Corinthian Jeopardy with, with this passage, but hopefully we'll be able to kind of flesh some of that out together this morning. As a reminder, our theme verse for this book is 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And keeping with that theme, we're going to take a more practical uh, concern, looking at a practical concern regarding how we should honor Christ in worship this morning in this passage. Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States. He was, he was one of the drafters of the Declaration of Independence, but one of the more um, interesting things that he left behind when he passed away was what's been termed the Jeffersonian Bible. Thomas Jefferson had this Bible, he had it for his own personal use, and he would take his Bible and he would cut out with a knife or scissors or something, he would cut out portions of Scripture that he did not think could be believed by a reasonable person. Uh, things like, there we go, there's his Bible. Things like the virgin birth, uh, many of the miracles Jesus did while he was on the earth, uh, even the resurrection were missing from the Jeffersonian Bible. Now, we see, of course, clear references in both the Old Testament and the New that we shouldn't add to or take away from Scripture but I, I would imagine he probably cut that part out too. <laughs> I, I mentioned the Jeffersonian Bible because, I mean, it's, it's still today one of the more popular exhibits when it's on display in the Smithsonian or, or at his museum at his home in Monticello in Virginia. But I mention it because he's not the only one that takes away parts of Scripture that, that he doesn't like. We see it all the time. We see it in the way people act and the way they think. They will disregard portions of Scripture that are truth because they don't like what it says. Even, even more recently, we have some popular, well-known Bible teachers who would say that we shouldn't listen to Paul all the time. We, we should stop listening to Paul, especially as it relates to Paul's teachings on women. Because when Paul teaches on women, he's really just a chauvinist. And his teachings on women are just his personal opinions. So we really shouldn't be listening to that. 
And I can tell you that for, for anyone who would cut portions of Scripture out of their Bible or who would say that we shouldn't listen to Paul uh, all the time, that this portion that we're going to look at this morning would be missing from their copies of the Scripture. So let's, let's read it together and you'll kind of see what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. And remember, we're not reading uh, verse 1 because that was really kind of part and parcel of last week's passage. Uh, we would think that the, that the chapter break should have been at, at verse 2 here. So 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originated from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman." And all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does even nature itself not teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her? For her hair is given to her as a covering. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. So this morning we're going to be looking at honoring God from the top down, headship, headwear, and hairstyles. Our theme for this passage this morning is as Christians, we must recognize God's ordained order in worship and submit to God's perfect design for our particular roles. The key verse for our passage this morning is verse 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. So as we look at that, what question could it be that, that the Corinthians had asked Paul? If we, go back, if we go back to our Jeopardy board here and we look at Christian headship for 600, we see the clue, which is our theme verse. Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. One commentator that I read in my study believes that this is what the Corinthians may have been asking Paul. Let me flip it over. Why do we maintain distinctions between men and women in the assembly? Have we not lost gender distinctions in the Lord? And then Paul would be addressing that. It appears that the Corinthians were confused with some of the teaching that Paul had already given them when he started the church. You know, Paul's been teaching them that, that in Christ they are one. There is, we read in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul wrote Galatians two years before he planted the church in Corinth. So we know that Paul likely gave them the exact same teaching. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. And there's, 
seems to be some confusion regarding that teaching. What does it mean that there's no male and female anymore? What, what does this mean? How should we dress? Do, do women still need to dress like women? How should we interact with one another? Is there a leadership structure now in the church, or is it, is it kind of a free-for-all? There's, there's some debate regarding this passage about the aim of the passage. Is this passage that we just read aimed solely at women, or is it for women and men? Was the problem that was going on in the Corinthian church a problem with women in the church, or was it, was it a problem for both? Well, we're going to look at how this passage applies to both men and women so that we may all glean something from it and apply it to ourselves. Let's look at our theme verse. Oh, that was the Galatians verse. Our theme verse again, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. It, it kind of sounds like Paul might be setting up some sort of chain of command there. Christ, man, and woman. But he's not. That's not what he's doing at all. If you look at that verse, it's bookended with Christ on the front and God on the end. And in the middle, we have man and woman. There's there's no chain of command. There's no hierarchy of what is more valuable or more worthy in that that sense. This really revolves around this this word head. And the the word head is the Greek word kephale. And there is some consternation among scholars, about what head means in this chapter, that Christ is the head of every man. Now, I would imagine most in this room, as, as did I, when you read that, you think the head is the authority. The, the head of your body is in control of your body. The head is the authority. And that's traditionally what the word head means. But there have been some who have come along kind of more recently and said that head in this passage might not mean authority. It might just mean source or origin. And they say that because they think that if we say that man is the head of woman, we are classifying women as second-class citizens in Christ. And so they want to come up with a definition that would mean anything other than authority. So they're thinking source, kind of like a river. Now, if you, if you take it to mean source and you, and you run it through, it, it just doesn't hold up. When you look at um, Christ and God... They've always coexisted. So when Christ took the form of man and submitted to God, God was his head, meaning his authority, but not his source. Wayne Grudem actually cataloged over 2,300 instances of this Greek word kephale in ancient literature, including scripture. And he could find not even one single instance where the word kephale meant source or origin. It either meant the anatomical head that sits on top of your shoulders, or it meant authority. So that's what it means in this in this passage, it means authority. When we see that Christ is the head of man, we have to understand that to mean that Christ is the authority over mankind, and and similarly with the other mentions of the word head here. So we're going to look at this principle, this principle that's in verse 3 that Paul's laying out, and we're going to look at how it applies to God, how it applies to men, and how it applies to women. So first off, the principle as it applies to Christ. We see in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, that God is the head of Christ. So, so really, before we even talk about headship and submission for men and for women and, and kind of what that looks like, we should really study what it looks like inside the Godhead. Because, of course, Jesus Christ is our, is our perfect standard. Firstly, Christ honored God by embracing his role in salvation. To fully appreciate Christ's submission to the Father, his submission to the headship of God the Father, we have to understand 
that Jesus is fully God. There are plenty of religions out there that deny the deity of Christ. And if, if Jesus Christ is not divine, if he's not one with the Father, then really this, this example of headship and, and submission doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense to us. It, Jesus is fully God. We see in Colossians chapter 1, when, when Paul is writing about the preeminence of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul writes, He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, by him, Christ, all things were created. Verse 17, he, Christ, is before all things. And verse 19, for in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We see that Jesus is fully God by his own words in, in John eight fifty eight, And this was mentioned a couple of Sundays ago when uh, Smedley Yates was teaching. Jesus, Jesus is being cross-examined by the Jewish leaders. And, and they're asking him, do you really think that you're as good as Father Abraham? Do you think you're greater than him? And Jesus responded to them saying, truly, truly, I say unto you, before Father Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus, we, we see, is equal in omnipotence, in omnipresence, and omniscience. Any other omnis out there, Jesus is equal with the Father. And he's just as holy and deserves our worship exactly the same. But yet his function in the Godhead, his function is different. His role is different than that of God the Father. So we see in verse 3 that, that God is the head of Christ, meaning in function. He's the authority over Christ in the, in the way the relationship plays out. So even though they are both have the same nature, there is a divine order and a differentiation in the role that they, that they embrace. And in that role, Jesus willingly submitted to God the Father because that was his role in the plan of salvation. Let me read to you Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When we read in Philippians that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that can be sort of puzzling. If we're really saying that, that Jesus... Christ and God the Father are equal, are both equally divine, then why would Scripture say that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Um, this came up in my wife's Bible study the other day. We were actually disgusted in our living room. And, and thankfully, I was studying that right at the same time. This, this word equality in the Greek sense, when equality is used here, does not mean, um, well, what it does mean is exactness. It means sameness. So Jesus did not count that his role in the Godhead was exactly the same as God the Father's. So th that's the sense in which equality is used here. Not that they're not equal in the Godhead. It's just that their role is different. So we see that there's just a, an asymmetry, really, in the role, even though they are both fully, equally God. There's, there's been much ink spilled over the last several decades, really, on this, this uh, idea of equality, and more recently on the idea of equality and inclusion, things like that. And all the, one of the major fallacies 
of modern ideologies, whether it's a feminist ideology or a, or a, a critical theory ideology, is that for something to be equal, for people to be equal, they have to do the exact same job. They have to do the exact same thing with the exact same pay, and everything has to be exactly equal for there to be this equality. And, and that's just simply not true. And we see, that in, we see that in the Godhead. There is no differentiation in the superiority, the dignity, the value of Jesus Christ and God the Father, even though they have a different role. And, and Paul's going to make that same point as it relates to men and women. There, there is a differentiation in the role for a woman as there is for a man, but there's no differentiation in spirituality, dignity, worth, value, anything like that. So we can see that the, the persons of the Godhead share in this divine nature, but there's an asymmetry in those relationships. And, and if that is the example in the Godhead, it really shouldn't offend us in any way that God has ordered our human relationships to exist in a similar fashion. Because honestly, if we don't follow God's order, we see that society breaks down. We see that marriages break down. We see that, that workplaces break down. We, we see everything crumbles when we don't follow God's design. So we've seen how the principle, as, a, as a laid out in verse 3, applies to the Godhead. Let's now look at how the principle applies to men. From this passage, we're going to look at how men can honor God by participating in worship fulfilling their headship responsibilities and by upholding a proper appearance in worship. The first point here is men ought to participate in corporate worship. Verse 4 from our passage, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Paul's writing to these Corinthian believers with the expectation that the readers were part of the corporate gathering. The, the men he's addressing, when he talks to the men, he expects are taking part and are active participants in the church. They pray. You can see they pray in, in worship and they prophesy or they talk to others about God in worship. And it's not really the thrust of Paul's point here in this passage, but it's nonetheless a good reminder for us, for the men in our group, to show up, to participate, to be a part of the, of the church gathering, to not have some sort of purely private Christian experience at your home that you don't fellowship with others. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Um, it's, let's see, 15 degrees outside and you're all here, so you're, you're nailing this one already, right? You're showing up, you're participating. Um, that's one of the expectations that Paul has when he's writing this letter. So it's kind of a given, but, but worth a reminder. Uh, secondly, men must fulfill their headship responsibilities to their wife and to their families. Paul says in verse 3, our theme verse, that man is the head of a woman, or, or some translations say wife. But in this passage, Paul doesn't give any real explanation as to what he means by man being the head of the woman. Uh, thankfully, uh, we have the rest of Scripture to interpret Scripture. And and uh, for those of you that already have a place marker in your Bible for what Pastor Tom is reading through and his scripture reading on Sunday mornings, he almost got here this morning. He'll get here next week. But if you'll turn to Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to look at 25 through 31. And Ephesians was a letter that, that Paul wrote about five or six years after he wrote these letters to the Corinthians when he was imprisoned in Rome. Here's what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 25 through 31. 
Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. In this passage, Paul's encouraging the reader to view the responsibility of the husband through the example of Christ, uh, the sacrificial example of Christ's ministry, his, his patient ministry, his gracious ministry, his loving ministry. And husbands in this regard are to represent Christ to their families, uh, point them to see God's grace in their lives at every turn. And, and biblical headship really should never result in a devaluing or a belittling of the wife. And, and that's important teaching, especially in the first century, because a lot of times women were treated as property back then. I, I mean, they were used and abused. And so for Paul to tell these believers to be sacrificial in the way they interact with their spouse was, was a game changer. Um, as it relates to the headship responsibility of the husband, there's a commentator, Brian Chapel. he writes this, My role is to build up my wife to enable her to sense fully and deeply her infinite worth to me and to her Savior. She cannot readily know her worth to God if the husband he provides to her somehow diminishes her. And the headship responsibilities of a husband is, is not even just a, a lesson for another time. It's a, it's a series for another time, really. And I know we've, in this church, have gone over that in men's Bible studies Uh, at great length. But let me give you just four kind of practical takeaways from this Ephesians passage about how a husband can can faithfully exercise his headship role to his wife. The first is, husbands, uh, fill your home with the word of God. Let me get there. Fill your home with the word of God. Verse 26 in that Ephesians passage says that Christ cleansed his bride by the washing of the word. So following this example, we as men should lead by ensuring that scripture, that our home is filled with with the Bible, and that we are intentionally bringing our families to places where the Word of God is faithfully preached, like you have this morning. Secondly, we should appreciate the beauty of our bride. Verse 27, we see that Christ presents the church to himself in splendor or in all her glory. And so, by following that example, we have to build up our wives by affirming her beauty both inside, both internally and externally. Three, ensure that your relationship, husbands, with your wife, takes precedence. Verse 31, we call it the, the leave and cleave verse. And the husband, as the head of the wife, should hold fast to her. Your relationship to your wife should take priority over all other human relationships. Children, grandchildren, co-workers, um, fellow countryside members. Your relationship to your wife should be number one. And lastly, uh, use your resources to nourish her. Verse 29 provides that if husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, they will nourish and cherish her. So biblical headship requires that we not act selfishly, but, but sacrificially in the way we treat our, our wife. So those are just some of the practical ways. Again, that's, this is a, a ton to unpack in Ephesians that we can't, really can't get into all the way this morning, but a couple of key takeaways. You know, too often, I think, men 
um, lose focus on, this, on the headship and submission piece because they, they often are looking at what their wife is doing and thinking, well, she's not, she's not being submissive or she's not upholding her end of the bargain here when really, you know, the onus is on the man. The, the, the primary responsibility is on the husband and his example to follow Christ's example. And I, and I would submit to you that if, if you have a problem with the submission of your bride, chances are if you looked in the mirror, you're probably not holding up your end of the bargain either. So it's always good to, to do a self-examination as it, results to, or as it relates to biblical headship. So men must honor God by participating in worship, by fulfilling their headship responsibilities. And thirdly, men should maintain a proper appearance in worship. This passage talks quite a bit about kind of the adornment of women, but it also touches on what men ought to look like. Verse 4, every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. Um, I don't see any uh, ball caps on men in here or any hats or anything like that. But what this, what this verse actually says, if you take, take it you know, kind of from the literal interpretation, is any man who having down from head, it's not even grammatically correct, but any man having down from head when he prays or prophesies. So there's really kind of two interpretations of what that means from the culture back then. The, the Romans, when they, would, when they would worship, I'm talking pagan idol worship, not worshiping the one true God, but pagan idol worship, the Roman men would, would be wearing a toga and they would take their toga and they would pull it up over their head and they would hang it down from their head. And they would do that when they're worshiping a pagan God or offering some sort of sacrifice to a pagan God. So one of the things Paul could be touching on here when he mentions that a man ought not to have something down from head means don't bring any pagan idol worship in when you're worshiping the one true God. We know that they've tended to do that. We talked about it, you know, several weeks ago, several months ago, actually, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. These new Corinthian believers were taking some of this and some of that and bringing it all into the church. And so they're, they're taking some of this pagan idol worship thinking that perhaps that's the way they should be worshiping and bringing it into the church. And Paul's telling them, don't do that. A man ought not to have something hanging from his head, something covering his head when he's worshiping the one true God. And, and secondly, the sign of a man's authority over women in that time, over his wife, was that the woman wore something on her head, not the man. So if the man was wearing something on his head in church, it could be seen as he's trading his masculinity, which... which comes to the second point there. In, in addition to avoiding clothing that dishonors God, a man ought to be masculine in appearance. We see in verse 7 that headwear for a man, something on his head, is a dishonor to God. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. And in verse 14 we see that in that culture long hair was a dishonor. Does even nature itself not teach you that if a man has long hair it is a dishonor to him? Now, and we'll go over this with, when I address women here in a minute too, but these particular teachings are cultural teachings. Similar to, we have cultural things going on here too. I mean, when, when, when men generally walk into a room, at least in Texas and the South, if they have a hat on, they're going to take it off, typically. When I'm in court, if somebody walks into court with a hat on, the bailiff hollers at them, take your hat off. We, we don't allow that. It's a cultural teaching. The, the cultural teaching here is, is men having their head covered is a dishonor. They ought not to do that. And men having a long hair was a dishonor. But why? 
what, what's the enduring principle that we can take from that? Because I'm not here telling you that, that men ought not to ever have long hair. That's, that's not the teaching. What, uh, one of the things John MacArthur says about this is that in that society, a man's uncovered head was a sign of his authority over women who were to have their heads covered. For a man to cover his head was to suggest a reversal of proper roles. So a man in that time having something on his head could be a sign of femininity. And Paul is teaching that, that a man ought not to look feminine in church or in public. Similarly with long hair, the, the Corinthian men did not wear their hair long. And so for, for a man to have long hair in that culture was to be some, some sort of like gender fluid appearance. It would be similar to us, if I can equate it to something uh, today, as if a man walked into our worship service wearing a dress or wearing earrings and a full face of, of makeup or something like that. That's what it would be similar to in our culture, uh, and that's what Paul is telling him, that there ought to be no confusion, men, when you show up for worship, that you are a man. Men ought to look like men. We, we expect them to look like men, and that's what Paul is teaching them. And that's kind of the, the lesson that endures here rather than the cultural kind of peculiarity there. So, so Paul's now he's laid out the principle for men here. Men ought to participate in corporate worship. Men have to fulfill their headship responsibilities to their wives and their families. And men, when they're in worship, ought to look like men. Now let's look at the principle as it applies to women. First, and similarly, women are welcome to participate in public corporate worship. And that's, I know that's a weird phrase, women are welcome to participate. But what you have to understand is, when he was writing this, women were not welcome to participate in corporate worship. In fact, they were often segregated if they were allowed to participate at all. So it's important not to gloss over that, that Paul is writing about how women ought to adorn themselves. And, and similarly, you see similar things in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But, but this is countercultural teaching because Paul is recognizing that women are included in the gathering. Uh, listen to what John Scheid says regarding the re religious roles of Roman women. In that time, women were either excluded from public and private religious life or confined to its alien or fringe aspects. When women exercised religious responsibilities, they did so at night or behind closed doors or in frontier temples. So, and this idea that, that women were excluded in the Roman culture was also the same in the Corinthian culture. But it looked a little different. Most of the time, if they came to the same place to worship, they were just segregated. Men worshipped over here, women worshipped over here. They didn't worship together. And so it, it makes sense, doesn't it, that if Paul is writing a letter and, and the thrust of that letter, at least part of what we looked at in the beginning, is unity of believers, he's going to make clear that women are included in, in whom he's writing to. So, really, this is kind of scandalous teaching from Paul at the time. It's hard for us to think about that today, but it, at that time, it was scandalous teaching. Um, commentator Philip Ryken notes that the remarkable thing about Paul, this goes back to what I said in the beginning, was not what a chauvinist he was, but how much of a feminist he was, in the sense that he promoted the full recognition of the gifts and status of women in Christ. Paul's teaching about gender created as much controversy then as it does now, but for the exact opposite reasons. So 
just a minor word of clarification, there, there are some that would say that our passage this morning, when it talks about how a woman ought to look when praying or prophesying, um, stands to mean that, that women can, can teach or take leadership positions in the church. Uh, that's not what Paul's saying here, and we're actually going to address that um, at the end of next month, I believe, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So just minor clarification there. But, but what Paul is doing in this passage, he's welcoming women into the assembly with open arms and saying they ought to participate alongside men. So as welcomed and valued members of the church, women, secondly, must honor God by their appearance in worship. And really the way Paul is laying out the principle in verse 3 is, is not only that women honor God by their appearance in worship, but they honor their head, which is their husbands, or if they're unmarried, their fathers. Look at verses 5 and 6 from our passage. But every woman who has her anatomical head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her figurative head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. I will admit I am not at all up on women's fashion in any way. So this was extremely puzzling for me to understand women's hairstyles and, and a shaved head or not a shaved head. And, and, and for us, I don't think we think much about if we were to see a woman with short hair or shaved head, we might think that there's a, perhaps a medical issue going on or she's made some sort of fashion choice, but it's not up to, we don't care. It's not up to us. So it doesn't make a ton of sense in our time, but, but to the readers of this letter, it would have been perfectly clear what Paul was saying about the shame that's brought for a woman who has a shaved head. And what he's saying is that women should avoid any association with a rebellious nature. So what's so shameful about a shaved head in that time for a woman? Well, a couple of things. The first is if a woman was caught in adultery, often her husband would shave her head and send her into the public to shame her. So if you saw a woman with a shaved head in public, it might be a sign that she was an adulteress and was being shamed. The secondly is it could be some sort of association with cultic worship. If, if a woman belonged to a cult and she was engaged in some sort of cultic ritual, she might shave her head. So you have adultery, cultic worship, and the third would be just some sort of general mark of rebellion. If, if a woman wanted to demonstrate a rebellion against the religious or social structures of the time, she might shave her head and uh, remove her veil and cut her hair. So in, in any of those scenarios, what Paul's saying, adultery, cultic worship, general rebellion, none of them have any place in the church. And all would be, bring disgrace to a woman and to her husband or her father and her family. But Paul's not actually saying that a woman ought to shave her head, right? He's not actually saying that. He's, this is you know, kind of hyperbole, Paul's saying that if a woman doesn't wear a covering in church, then she might as well just go all the way and shave her head, right? If, if she's not going to wear a covering or a veil, or if she's not going to have her hair pinned up, then she might as well just go all the way. And in that regard, what he's saying is that women ought to be feminine and modest in appearance. One of the things I, I kind of learned while studying this, I didn't know this at the time, was that in the, in the first century, in this time, a woman's hair, her unbound, free-flowing hair, was 
the greatest sexual enticement that a woman had. It was not showing any skin or body or anything like that. It was her hair. And so Paul doesn't come right out and say, you know, that women must be modest. He's really appealing to the culture when he's talking about a woman's hairstyle. And when we think about it, it'd be when he's warning about a woman not covering her head or going out with her hair down, it'd be similar to us uh, thinking about a woman going out with, you know, some sort of provocative clothing on or, or tight-fitting clothing into a public or religious gathering. It's, this isn't as blatantly scandalous as a, a shaved head would have been, but nonetheless, he's, he's warning women that, that by joining in the corporate worship, praying and prophesying, praying to God, talking to others about God, worshiping together, uncovered, could bring dishonor, would bring dishonor to them and to their figurative head of their husband. So let's look at the uncovered head culturally, because again, we're dealing with cultural issues that don't exactly apply to us. And so what's the enduring principle that Paul's kind of getting at? So for a woman in that time to have her hair, her head uncovered, would be disgraceful for a couple of reasons. The first would be, it could be a sign of prostitution. Like I said, the, a woman's unbound hair was her greatest you know, sexual enticement. So for a woman to walk around the Corinthian culture with her hair out would, could be the sign that she was kind of on the, on the prowl as a prostitute looking for her next client. Uh, it could also show that she was just generally available or wanted to look like she were available, wanted men to kind of look at her and, and check her out. Uh, commentator David Garland states that a veil or a hood for a woman constituted a warning. It signified that the wearer was a respectable woman that no man dare approach. Women who went out in public uncovered gave nonverbal clues that they were, quote, available. And the last thing that the uncovered head for a woman at that time could be is just the blurring of gender lines. Kind of what we talked about with men having long hair or men wearing something on their head. The women could be blurring gender lines by not wearing something on their head. And they could appear more masculine or that they were kind of disregarding or rebelling against the traditional gender distinctions. So what does this mean for women in worship today? You know, do I expect that next week uh, you guys will all come in with big, huge hats on or anything like that? Of, of course not. Um, we don't expect that. But, but what it does mean for us is that women ought not to dress provocatively in church. A woman ought to be modest and feminine in the way that she, in the way that she approaches church, the way that she dresses in church. Uh, to do something else would bring shame on, on her husband as her figurative head and on Christ as her head. And what's interesting is when, when Pastor Tom, for, I'll give a spoiler for those who haven't been in there yet, but when Pastor Tom finished this morning, he said that if it wasn't for Christ, if it wasn't for our salvation, we would rebel too. He's talking about Armageddon. We would be part of the rebel force. We would rebel if it wasn't for Christ. And this letter here in 1 Corinthians is written to Christians, right? It's, it's not written to the society as a whole. So the, Paul expects that the women that are reading this are, are saved, are, are being sanctified, and would, would heed his message. Uh, when you think about non-Christians, they would probably be throwing shoes or tomatoes at me right now regarding this sort of thing. So uh, we've now seen from our passage how the headship principle applies to, to Christ and the Godhead, to men and to women, but it, it might leave you wondering why. 
Why should men and women take part in the headship structure that God has designed? Why should men and women maintain gender distinctions in worship? Why does this passage matter to us in 2024? I'm going to give you five reasons from the passage why this principle we've studied is important for us. The first is the example in the Godhead. And, and of course, we looked at this right off the top, but it, it's worth repeating. We see an example of divine submission in the Godhead. Jesus Christ willingly submitted to God the Father. And where would we be if he hadn't? We're, we're only here. We're, we only have any hope in this life because Jesus submitted to God the Father in the plan of salvation, dying on the cross, and showing that this authority structure works. How much more ought we to submit in this authority structure that God has designed for us? Secondly, we see a pattern in creation, the pattern of creation. Verses 7 through 9 from our passage. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman, the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. So although both men and women are created in the image of God, although both men and women are God's best creation, Adam was the only one created from the dust of the ground. Adam was the only one who God set to rule over all the earth. And then Eve came along from Adam to be a helper for him. So the creation order bolsters the argument that Paul's making here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But, but Paul is no fool. He, he does put in a caveat. He doesn't want the men uh, getting haughty here or, or thinking they should not be sacrificial and loving in their response to their wives. Look at verse 11 and 12. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originated from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Man and women, of course, are interdependent on one another. John MacArthur comments that Man's authority over woman is a delegated authority and a derived authority, given by God to be used for his purposes and in his way. Man, as a fellow creature, has no innate superiority to woman and has no right to use his authority tyrannically or selfishly. The third reason why this principle is is important is somewhat of a confusing one. You see in verse 10 where it says, because of the angels. Therefore, woman ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because of the angels. Now, I will admit that I was stumped when I came to this portion of the passage, and, and so I kind of sought out the best counsel I could, and every person that I read, every commentator or theologian I read had a different take on it. So I was even more confused as to uh, what this part means. I think it's still kind of an enigma to to many, but the argument I found that was the most convincing, to me anyways, is this. The angels are the protectors of God's church, and they are patently submissive beings. The angels willingly submit to God's designed order, and if we, God's best creation, were to oppose God's divine order for headship and submission, that would offend the angels. And I think that's, that is... Um, Actually, where kind of John MacArthur landed on, on that topic too. Fourth, the fourth reason why this is important is God has built it into our nature. In verse 14, Paul appeals to just kind of what we all know in our hearts, what, what God has equipped us to recognize as right and wrong. Verse 14 and 15, Does even nature itself not teach you that if a man has long hair, 
it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. We know what men and women ought to look like. We know that men ought to look like men. Women ought to look like women. Um, Nature is helpful, meaning God's creation is helpful to us because, in general, women keep their hair longer, uh, longer in, in years. You know, men start losing their hair. Their hair starts thinning. We see in nature that, that women have hair. Men don't have as much hair, usually. But God expects us to embrace our role as men and women, and he uses his creative order, his, his nature that he has brought about to demonstrate that principle to us. And lastly, this principle is important to us because this is what God has designed for his churches. Verse 16, Paul says, But if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor have the churches of God. Paul is anticipating some sort of argument here. And Paul does that a lot. If you read read, uh, the epistles that Paul writes, he often will make his own objection and then answer it, right? He does that in Romans a lot. I love when he does that. So Paul's writing to clarify or correct something they've asked him about, and he's expecting a little pushback. But what he's going to tell them is, hey, look, none of my fellow apostles have any other teaching other than this, nor do any of the faithful churches of God, none of them. For you to push back against this would mean you're rebelling against the teaching through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the apostles and the practice of all the churches. Let's look at an application for us, for this, going forward. What do we do with this? I know it's, um, you know, kind of ambiguous, a lot of cultural teachings, but how can we apply this to our lives as we leave here? Because um, we're probably going to all be wearing toboggans when we get home anyways. First, let Jesus Christ be your example when it comes to headship and submission and follow his lead. Second, for men and women, strive to be an active participant in the corporate worship of the church. For men, embrace your role as the head of your wife and family and all that it entails. Do not be passive when it comes to leading your wife and family and pointing them to Christ. Women, know that there is no inferiority of value or worth or spirituality with men. But understand, just like Jesus Christ, that your role is different in God's design. Fifth, men, let there be no mistake that you are a man. Your appearance should be decidedly masculine. Women, demonstrate your obedience to God's design by a modest and feminine appearance. I read a comment this week that I think is is kind of a perfect fit for our closing. I'll put it up on the screen. Our God-given gender has implications for our unique spiritual responsibilities in the home and in the church without threatening our fundamental equality in Christ. God calls men to exercise servant leadership as husbands and officers in the church while he calls women to submit to this leadership as wives and as members of the church. But overall, we should celebrate our oneness that we have together in Christ. So hopefully none of you will be cutting this portion of text out of your scripture uh, before next week. And then, you know, I, this is what I fully expect our class to look like next week when we show up. <laughs> so just, just take a look at that, and uh, that's what we can all look like. But let me pray for us, then we can be on our way.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for bringing these families here today, uh, even in this weather, God. We ask that you would keep us all safe as we go from this place. We thank you for your teaching. We thank you that you have made us the way we are. We ask that you would help us to embrace our roles as men, women, husbands, wives, and that we would honor you as our head, God, that everything we would do, whether our appearance or our conduct, would be glorifying to you and that we would give you all the glory for everything. Uh, We ask that you would be with all the various prayer requests and praises that were offered this morning, God. We thank you for your son, Jesus, without whose submission to God the Father, we would have nothing. We would have no hope. Uh, We love you. We ask you to bring us back safely again next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.